Open up your Bibles, please, to 1 John, 1 John chapter 2. I apologize I didn't have that in the order of worship. Uh, 1 John chapter 2. Seeing how we just finished our series in the book of Ephesians, uh, oftentimes I'll just do a couple independent messages before we go into another book, just seeking the Lord as to the direction of where He would have us as a pulpit ministry go to next. And during this week, I was uh, studying this passage of text, uh, actually, and uh, wanted to bring it before God's people just for consideration, as it was such a blessing to myself. First John, chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 1 through 6. Let us hear the word of the Lord. My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And hereby we do know that we know Him, if we keep His commandments. He that saith, I know Him, and keepeth not His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. He that saith he abideth in him, abideth in Jesus, ought himself also to walk even as he walked. Well, let's get just a little bit of context here. And this pastoral letter, the first of three that the Apostle John is writing to the early Christian church. Some believe that he's writing this epistle from Ephesus, which we just learned a lot about uh, the last several months. Some believe he's just writing a general epistle for all the churches. Uh, But really, what's most important for our purposes today is to understand that Really what John's doing in this pastoral epistle is he's addressing false teachers, namely those who denied that Jesus the man was truly the Messiah, the Christ, that he was divine. We know this because in verse 22 of chapter 22, John focuses on these false teachings. He says, Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? Challenging Jesus is the divinity, the teachings of the apostles, the teachings of, the, uh, of Jesus himself. He says in verse 22, That person is an antichrist that, defineth, that denieth the Father and the Son. And then later on, he focuses on this again. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, I'll just read verse 3. He says, And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is in the world. And so it's important for us to know that in the Greek culture that John is writing to the church in, it was inconceivable that the spirit Messiah could be um, married combined with a human body. A man cannot be the spirit. The spirit was good. Materialistic things were bad. This was part of the early teachings of the Gnostics, so forth and so on. In fact, an early church historian by the name of Irenaeus, he said that John wrote this against one of the heresies of a man named Serenthus, who claimed that 
the Messiah Spirit was given to Jesus as a man at His baptism, but that same Messiah Spirit left before the crucifixion. And so there was creeping into the early church through the, the, the Greek culture this tension with divorcing that which is material and that which is spiritual, confusing, through the false teachers that is, confusing the Christians and challenging this concept of Jesus being both God and man. And so this is largely why John's writing this letter. That's important for us to know. Now, what we know from chapter 2 later on in verses 18 and 19, that these false teachers would come in, they wouldn't be accepted amongst the Christians. And then John tells us in chapter 2, verse 8, 19, that they would go out. And so they come in, and they bring their Greek traditions and cultural understandings of spiritual things and paganism and mythology into the church, challenge the gospel, challenge the divinity of Jesus, cause a bunch of disruption. The faithful would say, no, 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 no. The teachings of Paul, the teachings of Peter, the teachings of Christ says this is who Christ was. They wouldn't get a game, they wouldn't get a following. They'd pick up a couple of people that they would deceive. And then, verses 18 and 19 tells us, they would go out from us because they were never of us. Right? So they would disrupt the church, cause all of these problems. And so John, through the wisdom of our Heavenly Father, is inspired by the Holy Spirit to respond to this crisis of these false teachers coming in, disrupting the church, leaving the church, taking people with them to comfort the hearts of of those that remain, to add a little bit of stability. And that's what's so tender about this pastoral letter is that you know that's the heart of what John is really communicating here as he was inspired. Now John does this to comfort their hearts by, by painting a picture of contrasts. Dear saints, don't be troubled. These men were never of the Father. They were of us, but they never were. They went out from us, but they never were of us. And he does so by painting contrasts between the children of light, the children of God, with these false teachers and those who were deceived and never converted to begin with. And he does this with using phrases throughout this pastoral epistle here in 1 John. He uses phrases such as to describe the people of God who are still in the church. You're born of God. We saw it today particularly toward uh, the end of our reading where he says, those who abide in Him, those who are connected, those who say they are in Him. He uses phrases like, uh, those who know Him. These were all to be used by John to describe that which applies to those whose salvation has been given to. And in fact, if we're uh, confused at all about what his main intent was to help the church have assurance that just because there's disruption, just because these false teachers have come in, uh, we see that his main purpose is explicitly stated in chapter 5. You can just turn a couple pages. Chapter 5, verse 13. He says, These things have I written unto you, that ye believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know, that ye may know, that you have eternal life amidst all of this disruption, amidst all of these men, these, these sons of Satan that have come into the church, confused everything, and then you know, left, and there's big disruption. I'm writing these things that you can know you have eternal life. He's trying to settle them in the reality of who Jesus is, God-man, and what He has done for them and what they possess. 
So in other words, the Spirit of God uses this letter for the specific purpose of granting His church assurance that they have eternal life in Jesus. And in order to accomplish that purpose of giving them the assurance of who Jesus is and what they possess in Him, uh, to achieve this purpose of biblical assurance, the letter of 1 John sets forth several tests, as if it were, several examination tests for the reader to read. And through those tests, it becomes clear, oh yes, those who went out from us, they never were of us. Oh yes, but yes, this I can say that these tests which elevate certain character qualities in the house of God, in those who have experienced faith, who can say, I abide in Him and and He in me, I can honestly say in this evaluation that sincerely this does describe me. And thus, I can know Jesus is who He is and I have what He promises. These tests are sprinkled all throughout 1 John, but I want us to specifically look at just one today that's in verses 5 and 6, and that is where John says that those who abide in Jesus, those who say Jesus is in them, they will walk as Jesus walked. They will, in other words, imitate Jesus. And so the message of, or the title of the message today is Imitating Jesus as you see in your handout, a seemingly impossible task. But this is indeed what we see in verses 5 and 6 is one of the tests for those who are remaining in the church that they have assurance of being one of Christ's uh, disciples. Look at verse 5 and 6 again. Whoso keeps his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. By what? By keeping His Word. We, we want to keep His Word. We, we are reading His Word. We take it seriously. In verse 6, For my purposes and our purposes together today, he that saith he abides in Him, he, he who has a confession that he's joined with Jesus, then he abides in Jesus, ought himself, listen to the statement, also to walk even as he walked. Not close to how he walked. It says even as the Savior walked. Walking as Jesus walked. Imitating Jesus. This impossible task that's before us. Now if you're like me, at first glance, you're probably filled with more doubt and despair at that statement than you are assurance in your faith. Because who of us in here would ever have the audacity to even think, let alone declare, Yes, I'm in Him. I confess the Lord as Savior. I am a Christian. And yes, I walk as Jesus walked. Of course we wouldn't. But after we go through the text today and we unpack what is meant here, I hope that we will have the best of encouragement for even the weakest saint among us. And so how do I want us to consider this text together? First of all, I want us to consider who it is that we're to follow and his life, that is Jesus. Let's consider the life that Jesus lived. Because uh, John is literally saying, walk as he walked. Imitate him in his life. And so let us consider in our first heading, the life that Jesus lived. In order to do this, I think it's helpful, is it not, to consider that 
Jesus, the Bible teaches us, did come and take upon himself human flesh that had the same fallen qualities as we have. Well, wait a minute, Pastor Doug. I don't like that language. Well, you ought to because Jesus could get sick. Jesus could get tired. He could get hungry. Jesus could be tempted, but never sinned. We know this because Romans 8.3 very plainly teaches us. We could go all over the Bible to prove this point. But just before we even start examining his life, remember, friends, he was a man. Romans 8.3, For what the law could not do, the apostle inspired to write said, the apostle Paul, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. This statement by Paul clearly stresses the truth of what I just said. And it's outlined in other places in Scripture that Jesus assumed a human nature which was subject to all the limitations and frailties that we ourselves have yet without sin of his own omission. One commentator explains it this way. Jesus took on the nature not as it came originally from the hand of the Creator in its perfect condition, but that which was weakened by sin, which you and I also possess, though remaining itself without sin. Simply meaning, never having committed sin. Think for a moment about that. Wouldn't it have been incomprehensible and humiliating? Understanding the purpose of why Jesus came to come and not take on the same Fallen human flesh, sinful flesh, as Romans 3 says, that you and I have? How could he later then be described as one that can sympathize with us? How then would the cross, the central part of the gospel, really have the same amount of power if, sister, we know that he could go to the cross but somehow not feel pain? You see, or he didn't have to wrestle in the Garden of Gethsemane to the point, as many people and commentators believe, was so stressful that the human biological makeup caused him to actually uh, exert blood out of his forehead. You see, all of that narrative starts losing its power, doesn't it? If Jesus came and he possessed a human flesh that, in other words, was not the same that we had. So when uh, John here calls us to walk as he walked, we're knowing that he walked as a man who was subject to all the same frailties that we had and he lived a sinless life. And we're supposed to walk like him? To understand, I think, the magnitude of this point, let's consider for a moment a comparison between one, we could easily argue, one of the most pious people of all of church history, the Apostle Paul, and compare him to Jesus. And how Jesus even exemplified as another man a perfect and sinless life. The Apostle Paul and his comparison to Jesus. Consider how that there was never one moment that Paul says himself in his life in which he loved God as God deserved to be loved. Paul never performed one deed for God that he could say that he did it all just for the glory of God and did not have just a smidgen of motivation. He says that about himself. Yet we know that the Lord Jesus never had one moment in his life when he did not love the Lord his God with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his strength as he commanded others to do in Mark 12.30. 
Jesus, who was the divine man, Nolan, who had a, the same uh, frailties as you had, he perfectly loved the Lord God. Always. Jesus' sinless perfection was so outstanding and consider that it was so irrefutable that without the slightest hesitancy, he bore witness to his own perfections, his own obedience to the Father, even when he stood in the court and in the face of his own enemies. Think about it. Who among us here today would stand before the most ardent opponents that we have and put forth the challenges Jesus did in John 8, 46 when He said, Which of you convinced me of sin? None of us would do that, would we? I would never dare do that in front of my old family. They'd say, well, I'm glad you said that because I've been keeping a file over here, you know. Who among us would be bold enough to stand before the religious authorities of our day and declare as Jesus did in John 8, 29 when He said, I always do those things that please Him, please the Father. That's an inclusive word. Right there, the Bible does mean always. Jesus always did that which, the, which pleased the Father. And brother, John's telling us if we abide in Him and we say and we confess we abide in Him, we're supposed to always do that which pleased the Father as well. This was Christ's testimony about Himself. And what's interesting is that His testimony wasn't just His alone. Sure, a madman could come into history and make claims such as this, so forth and so on. But remember that the Heavenly Father Himself bore witness of Christ's perfect obedience as recorded in Matthew 3, 7, where a voice from heaven in the ears or consciences, we don't know exactly how, of a multitude of people from heaven, sister, the Father above said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So His witness of His perfect life is corroborated by that of another witness, the witness of all witnesses, the Heavenly Father. And in fact, everywhere in the New Testament we look, we find the testimony of the impeccable, perfect life of Christ, even through the lips of His own enemies. Recall, for instance, how that not long after Judas betrayed our Lord, filled with, some don't like to think this, I think it was true, I think, his, I think he was given a great conviction of grief, to where he goes and he commits suicide, he cries out, as recorded in Matthew 27, 4, I have sinned in that I have betrayed the, authorized version translation, the innocent blood. There's only one sister innocent blood, the Lord Jesus Christ. And John's saying here, I'm to walk as he walks. Yes, that's what he's saying. Recall the innocency of our Lord through the lips of his own enemies when he was before Pontius Pilate. And before Pontius Pilate gave the, his dreadful verdict, his wife came out. And what did she say is recorded in Matthew 27, 19? She tells her husband, have nothing to do with that just man, that righteous man, that innocent man. For I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. Well, who do you think sent the dream? The father through her was testifying of the justness, the innocency of Christ. How can we forget of the witness of His enemies declaring His own perfectness at the crucifixion? How a hardened Roman centurion lifted up his own lips as recorded in Luke 23, 47 and said, certainly, 
this was a righteous man. The New Testament bears not only witness as we're considering the life of Christ, who John here is telling us to imitate and walk of his uh, innocency as a man, but also his sinlessness, but also the positive things he did, his righteous works. Not only did he negatively stay away from sin and not commit it, he positively did all sorts of works of righteousness that we are supposed to imitate. He preached the gospel to the poor. He proclaimed release to the captivities. He brought recovery, we learned this morning, to the sight of the blind. He set free those who were oppressed. When he opened his mouth to teach, the Bible instructs us, people responded with amazement to the authority that he had possessed. When they were hungry, we know, with only a few loaves and a few fishes, Jesus did what? Had compassion and he fed the multitudes. He cared for the hungry. He cared for the poor. He took time. He got involved. He was a just and a perfect man. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. It was not without reason we conclude that the people were utterly astonished at our Lord and bore witness of Him all throughout the Testament, but especially as recorded in Mark 7.37, He has done all things well, and we are supposed to imitate that. In light of Jesus' impeccable life, in light of Jesus' positive glorious, righteous, good works that He accomplished, being obedient even unto the death of the cross. We at this point, looking at this test that John, the beloved apostle, was putting before us, might rightfully question, how can this be fair? How can John demand of us in verse 6 that those who confess Jesus have to walk and imitate Him as He walked? This leads us to our second consideration. How can we compare? Considering the righteous, glorious life and works of Jesus, considering and pondering the test, young Levi, that's in front of us now, who of us in here isn't asking the question, how can I compare to that? Why would this beloved apostle through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, place upon us, dear church, this heavy burden that neither He nor other apostles themselves were even able to bear. How could even the most pious of saints ever possess any sort of remnant or thread of assurance in their life with such a standard set before them which they know they can never meet? Think about it for a minute. It would have been easier to follow a long regiment of law-keeping than to match the life and the works of Jesus Christ. It would be easier to go through all the the rigor more of the ceremonial law and, and and the works of the Pharisees, even though they heaped upon tradition upon tradition requirements that you had to do in order to maintain your righteousness. That still would be easier to do. Tell me what I got to do. There's the list. I'm going to white knuckle it and I'm going to do it. And many of them did. And they thought themselves righteous, didn't they? How could we ever compare to the life and the works of such a perfect God-man? Well, before we sink into despair, 
Let us be mindful of the context in the scriptures where we find this test. The context comes to the surface in verses 15 and 16. Look with me there. He's putting forth, this, he's putting forth these tests. One of which is what we're considering today, to imitate the life of the Lord Jesus, to walk as he walks. And look at verse 15. One of the main thrusts, if I was preaching a a sermon all through this, this would be the main theme I would pick up out of John 2. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. That's the context that that John is placing these examinations before the remaining Christians that are in the church after the false teachers have left. Okay? Where's your love? Where's the inclination, the disposition of your heart? Is it after the things of the world? Or is it after the things of the Savior? He's not demanding, I'm contending here, for the attainment of some impossible level of perfection which he himself could never uh, achieve, which the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter clearly demonstrate them themselves as apostles never achieved, but he's encouraging us to examine the inclination, the affections of our lives. That is the disposition of your character. Examine it, John's saying. Where is your heart? Or... Are you guilty of those that Paul set forth the question in the church of Ephesus? We just came out of the Ephesian, uh, the book of, of, of Ephesians. Remember Paul asked them in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, he challenged them, don't walk according to the course of this world. That was another pastoral epistle from Paul. He was always trying to get the church to keep their eye, what? Focused on the goal. Focused on the cross. Focused on their Lord. Is your heart focused on the world or through the sanctifying work of the Spirit are you learning, are you desiring to learn to follow in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus Christ and walk as He walked? Is there observable... John's pressing this for this purpose. He wants them to examine and ask them, is there observable practical evidence that we are indeed desiring and wanting to walk as the Savior walked? As we see His perfect life, we see His good deeds, we see His perfect right. Is there a sincere desire to want to be like Him? Or is our claim to be a disciple of Christ validated or proven false by our attitudes, our actions, and our words. This is what John's laying forth before those who are staying in the church after the false teachers left. Where's your heart? Does, John's wanting them to ask themselves, does your daily conduct reflect more of a Christ understanding and attitude about your life and the world around you than what the world says? that he spoke so harshly about in verses 15 and 16? Does it grieve you deeply when you look and you consider, like the Apostle Paul did, there's this great gulf that exists between me and the example of Jesus? Why would it grieve you? Because when you look at his perfect life, 
When you look at his perfect example, Isaac, you see, oh God, I have so much more work to do. I have so much more um, that I, I see in myself that I know is not right. And, and oh God, I need your help to grow in these areas. But Lord, there is a desire, there is a willingness in me that, that I know that that is the footsteps I'm to follow. The perfect illustration of this could be those that every father and every mother in here could well remember. Uh, perhaps not if you're from a climate where there's no snow. This only works in a climate where there's snow. But do you, can you recall when your children are young and you go out and you just had, you know, 12 inches of snow? Well, that's a lot, isn't it? We'll say, we'll say six inches of snow, but there's some snow. There's some substantial snow. You got to get the snow boots on. And one of the parents starts to walk first. And what do you do? You tell the children, follow in my footsteps, don't you? Just step life step. And then not thinking about it, not even considering that they don't have the same physical abilities to have a longer, more balanced stride, uh, to be able to keep, you know what I'm saying, up with the pace. The next thing you know, mom or dad or what, a hundred feet away and they look back and little Sarah and little Johnny have barely left the finish line. They're wobbling. They're falling down. They don't have the length to, to reach forward and, and, fall, and land in the pattern that mom and dad's left for them. And they're fumbling all from the place. But what you do see in that child, you do see an earnest, sincere desire to want to follow the elder person. Follow mom or dad, don't you? You see this as well in relationships, sometimes where you have an older brother or younger brother, sometimes in a family dynamic. I like to see that because I watch how the, old, the younger brother is trying to emulate the older brother. He doesn't have the same qualities. Uh, he can't yield the axe just as well, but he's going to go out on the day of cutting wood and he's going to have an axe, even though he's causing more damage than good, right? But he's still trying. Why? Because there's this sincere, legitimate, genuine desire to be like him. Be like him. Brothers and sisters, this is what John's getting at. Do we really want to be like Christ? Do we truly desire to walk as he walked? And does it make us unsettled in our, in our, in our, in our lives? Until we get to that point. I'm not saying that it's unsettled to where you can't have no joy, you don't have no peace. I'm just saying you always are aware of the fact and your prayer life exhibits the fact that, oh God, I want to be more like the Savior. Give me more. We say unto the hymn, do we not? Give me more, more of Jesus. According to the Scriptures, Jesus wants us to follow in His footsteps Himself. So this isn't just something John has been inspired to be the first ones to convey that, hey, you Christians who really can't do this, I want you to do this. No, Jesus himself and the other apostles also said, follow Christ, follow his path. Christ is not only our prophet, our priest and our king, but he also is, as I used in my example, that one who goes before us with the ability, the perfect example, the perfect stride, the perfect balance. And He makes the way. He, he shows us the path that we are to follow. And His desires that we would imitate it. The Apostle Paul, you may know, he writes that we were predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. 
So we just come out of the book of Ephesians and we learn all about, you know, soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, how we're saved, how God eternally predestined us. And it wasn't just so that we got a ticket into heaven. It was that we would be conformed to the image of Christ, that he would birth in us a desire to continue to live out his word in our life and follow Christ. One of the most beautiful examples of one of the purposes of salvation that we would conform and be like the Savior. The Bible says, through the inspired Apostle Paul, that Christ would be the firstborn among many brethren. And then Paul further exhorts us, does he not, to be imitator, imitators of himself, insomuch as he was imitating the life of Jesus, which he confesses he wasn't doing perfectly. But you get this idea that, yeah, There is this thread in the New Testament where we are called to walk and to follow after Him. Does not 1 Peter 2.21 encourage the believers, even in the midst of their sufferings, to also follow the example of His steps, even when we're having difficult times? Lastly, consider the author of Hebrews, who admonishes us in Hebrews 12.1-2, lay aside every weight and the sin which doth easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Now, would you agree that in light of all of that, it doesn't seem unusual now that John's telling us to walk even as he walked in our text today? After all, shouldn't someone who's a disciple want to mimic the life of their master? This is what a disciple means. This is what it's all about. This is the whole master-disciple dichotomy and relationship. A disciple is not just learning all the teachings of my master, but as I learn of him, I watch him, I walk with him, I want to be like him, right? Now, lest we take that too far, this idea that someday a disciple can be like the master and get his Christian black belt and surpass the master, Christianity doesn't work that way. The master-disciple relationship is very clear in the Bible that it never culminates in the disciple ever becoming in every equal way like the master. Right? That's why I use the Apostle Paul as a comparison. Because if anyone was going to get the black belt in discipleship, it would have been Apostle Paul, right? And he himself even lamented his remaining corruptions and sins in Romans 7. In other words, beloved, we will never graduate to the level of our Lord Jesus Christ. We will always in the church as his followers and his disciples. We will always be students seeking to learn, seeking and desiring to want to follow him. The most Christ-like believer, I have in my notes here, says, will always be a student who has yet to be fully conformed to the perfections of Jesus Christ. And most of the time, when you meet a Christian who's been walking with the Lord twice as long as you've walked with the Lord, they will be the most humblest admitter to the fact that they have so much more to do and, to, and, 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 and uh, aspire to press on toward. 
They never look at you and go, you know what, I'm just glad I'm not where you're at. I mean, I'm so far beyond that. And I tell you, you know, I don't know much more that you can really pray for me about. I mean, I just, you know, I know the Bible back and forth. I've already, you know, researched and got my doctrine. I know every, you know, systematic theology. And, uh, oh, yeah, I used to have sins with that. I don't have that anymore. I've never, every older person, hoary head that's been walking with the Lord, they cry out like the blind men this morning we learned in Matthew, Lord, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Even during our most Christ-like moments, we all resemble, do we not, the little child trying to follow the older parent? In our most Christ-like moments, our best week, we're still not keeping up with the stride. We're still awkward. We're still falling over. And thus the mature believer is aware, isn't he, that there's always a great ground of, you could say, making up a great ground of pressing on to accomplish. He's always aware of that. And I don't think that comes through anywhere clearer than Paul's own writings as he was inspired in Philippians 3, 12 through 14. You go to the verse well. Listen, the Apostle Paul, guys. Listen how he described his following Jesus, him imitating Jesus. Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend, that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have already apprehended, but this one thing I do, this one thing that you must do, Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of Christ Jesus. This is what John is challenging the church with. Now that these guys have come in, made rack and ruin of the theology of who Jesus is, deceived some, have taken and carried some away, they went out from among us, never were among. They went out from among us, but never were of us. Now that that has happened, what will you do? Will you continue to imitate Christ? Oh, but John, I'm ashamed to say that I actually hosted those men in my home, and I actually helped them print their materials, and I actually helped them to deceive some of the brethren that got led astray. John, I'm just so unworthy. Are you going to imitate Jesus? Are you going to continue to walk? Oh, but John, you don't understand. Just this week, I mean, I've been a horrible husband. I've been just a horrible wife. I've been just a disrespectful, rebellious child. Are you going to press forward? Are you going to go forward to apprehend that which is ahead? Or are you going to make the mistake of looking behind? Because if you're looking behind, you're not imitating Jesus. You're not imitating Jesus. The great apostle never made a claim to perfection. That's what we see in Philippians. But he never pretended as if he was already walking as Jesus walked. That's a stark warning to the self-righteous in the Christian world. To elevate yourself as if you're walking as Jesus walked. And there's many men who are setting up their own kingdoms and women too, who have a following as if they're put on a pedestal and they're walking as Jesus walked. They would never say that, of course. Perhaps through their teachings and various things they rattle off, they imply it. While the Apostle Paul never claimed to have the perfection that Jesus had, 
He did demonstrate in his life a real and an observable passion to be like Jesus, didn't he? You could see in the Apostle Paul, not a perfect man, but someone who was really pressing on toward the goal. You could see one who was making progress to the point of being able to say to his other um, friends in the faith, as he did in 1 Corinthians 11.1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. This is the balance in Paul's understanding of sanctification. And it helps us now to approach this test that's set before us of having equal biblical balance in how we are attempting to walk with Jesus. We know we can never do it perfectly, beloved, but we still press forward as if we wish to be perfect. We still press forward as if we desire to be like our elder brother in the faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. John is not teaching that we must attain perfection before we can assume upon ourselves assurance in what only Jesus Christ can accomplish for our justification and salvation. He's not withholding assurance for only those super saints who completely obtain a certain level of sanctification. However, John does not give any aspect of assurance to those who demonstrate a life who's not pressing forward as if they desire it. Lack of conformity to walk as Jesus walked. Having no practical, observable evidence of genuinely desiring for greater conformity to Jesus' walk. Not having even one observable, identifiable step of progress. Such a person can find no comfort in this text today. None. They can't point to the front of their Bibles saying, I said the sinner's prayer on this date or that date. If they haven't, you see, they can't go to this text. They can't go to this and they can't go to the witness of Paul. They can't go to witness all the other New Testament and say, you know what? Yeah, I have complete assurance. They would be fearful reading this text. I hope that we've properly understood that this test, this charge before us to walk as Christ walked is not complete perfection. But it's an examination of exposing the inclination of our heart of how do we desire to be walking. Are we indifferent to it? Are we just kind of settled down and okay with it? You have every reason to fear. You have every reason to be concerned about any area of your life that you've grown cold or indifferent toward that does not resemble the perfect Savior. And thus, that leads us to our concluding heading. Beloved, we must examine our walks. Examine our walks. What is the goal and the posture of our hearts in our walk with Jesus? Does our attitude that's reflected in our lives demonstrate a real passion to resemble the walk and the life of Christ and His teachings? Be honest with yourself this morning. To the degree that you are able to say yes, you may, according to this verse, take genuine comfort that you have been converted by the blood and the gospel of your Lord Jesus Christ who began a good work in you and is still working it out. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. You can find comfort in this text. You don't find discouragement. You say, oh yes, I do want to be like him. Brother, pray for me here. Pray, pray for me there. Find, an, 
another Christian brother that you can get a little bit more detail, detailed about it and talk for serious prayer in your life of things in your life that need to be sanctified through. Why? Because you sincerely want to be like the Savior. You want to strive as the Apostle Paul said in sanctification. However, to the degree that the posture and the attitude of your heart in bearing forth and reflecting in your life resembles more of that of the unbelieving world, you have every reason to be concerned. Simply meaning that if you are sharing the same goals with all of the worldlings around you who do not confess Christ, if your thoughts, your time, the source and the center of your happiness and the center and source of how you dispense of God-given resources to you are more concerned with this vanishing world than they are the Savior and His kingdom work, you do have reason to be concerned. Where's your heart? What's the main center and focus of your life? If one is here today that admires what the world admires, verses 15 and 16 in our text today, and seeks to mimic the world's ways and philosophies, that person should call into question the genuineness of their profession, of their faith, period. You can't get away from it. This is what this test does. It brings to the surface these things that people don't like to consider about their nice, comfortable, categorized Christianity. If after we examine ourselves, beloved, and we find that we are wanting, we should, ne- we should avoid two ditches of being apathetic or paralyzed with despair. And what should we do? Today, if you find yourself in this position, come to the solution of Christ and His Word. Christ and in His Word will equip you, will channel you, will get your thinking, get your heart posture, your uh, inclination, this disposition of your character where it has to be. But before that takes place, there has to be what we talked about last week, this liberty of conscience. There has to be a sincere work of the Holy Spirit in a man's heart to where he realizes he is admiring the things the world admires more than he is the example of Christ. His affections, his thoughts, his pursuits are more fixed on what the world says is success, what its attainments are, than what the kingdom of Christ says success and attainment is. And through that, there's a new birth. There is an opening of the eyes. There's an opening of the conscience. And what's at the center of that new birth? What's at the center of that new life? The Savior and the footsteps that one must follow. And AJ, once your eyes have been opened like that, you will continually, steadily seek to walk as Jesus walked, to imitate the Lord Jesus Christ. So it may indeed, yes, be an impossible task, but on this side of glory, the Holy Spirit equips us through His Word and through that continued perseverance of the saints to move forward even after we're awkward and fall, to follow the Savior and the Master, like Paul said. Press toward the mark. Press toward the mark. And may God give us grace, brothers and sisters, to do that in the ages to come. Let's close with a word of prayer. 
Heavenly Father, we give you all glory. We give you all adoration. We give you all praise and all worship. For Lord God, you are the one who sovereignly sent forth your blessed spirit, your powerful spirit to open the hearts, the cold, calloused hearts of dead sinners. And oh God, in your perfect wisdom, in your perfect design, decreative plan, you, O oh Father, do not leave your awakened church in a ditch of apathy and despair. But Lord, you gave us your spirit. You gave us eyes to see and ears to hear. And Lord God, with that, we do earnestly seek to follow the Savior. And oh Lord, we do earnestly hate the remaining sin in our lives. And we, like the blind man, cry out to you and ask you to have mercy upon us. Lord, let us never be content with those areas that we talked about in our first message of discontentment, areas of selfishness, areas, O Lord, of anger and bitterness, unforgiveness, whatever it may be. Lord, we pray that you would give us more power in our lives to overcome sin and to walk in the footsteps of our blessed Savior so that, O God, we can be more of a blessing to others. That we could, O God, be sacrificial as the Savior was sacrificial in His entire life. Father, we confess along with the others of the most imminent examples in the faith that we have so much farther to go. But instead, O Lord, of being despondent and trapped in a cage of despair, we look to Your promises. We look to the examples that You have given us throughout the chronicles of church history. And we do press forward. We do, O God, by the power of Your Spirit and the trust in Your Word, shake ourselves off. And O Lord, we repent. We do, O God, feel grieved over the things that, Lord, displease Thee. And we ask You, God, as we approach the supper today, focus solely upon Jesus, not our performance, that You would, Lord, we pray, continue to lead, continue to guide, and continue to keep us as Your sons and daughters in the true way. Help us, God, not to turn to the left nor to the right. We are so weak and frail, we admit. And we trust that you will keep us and that you will preserve us all unto your own glory. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.